Yeah, I can definitely see that, you know, and, and it's just, yeah, it forces you to interact and, and collaborate and solve problems without like free of any bias. You know, it's a fun I, way to do it. I mean, oh, no, well, and I was going to say, I mean, obviously there's there's still obviously some people infer from all sure. kinds of things. But yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so complicated. Like there's so, so much nuance and complexity to the situation, but it is a really cool thing, you know, and and um, it's kind of it's kind of funny because going back to the question that Taylor asked. A, long, a while ago, 20 minutes ago or whatever it was. Yeah. The one I was supposed to be answering, but I was like, then the Supreme no. Court just has said the following. Uh, <laughs> no, I think this is great because like you've built on all of these really cool ideas. And one of the things that I really take away from it is that this, I think that um, the more and more that accessibility becomes like ubiquitous for everybody, like and that, that's going to like, you know, I guess I think you said this, I'm going to say it. It makes me a little bit of an optimist, I guess, but it's like, that is going to be a better thing in the long run and not just accessibility of like, you know, utility like the internet, but accessibility to, to games itself. You were made, you were made the sports comparison and that part of why esports is so great is because of the level of accessibility that it affords so many people and it lowers down these barriers and man, by not tapping into all of the people that wanted to have those sports mentalities and those sports experiences, you're missing out on like 80% of like the great ideas and the great contributions that they have available. And it sounds like it's the same exact thing when it comes to like remote work and, and um, just, just the internet in general, it's such a great thing in that way. And I think that the accessibility, like you were describing, is the best part about it. You know? Yeah. And um, a huge part of what I loved about Woodshop and I use this example too, partly because like, okay, how, what percentage of people who took Woodshop go and become carpenters? Most don't. Some might have. Most don't. Not really the point. Um, besides the fact, kind of enrichment, kind of fun, something to do, something to you know, build confidence, whatever. Also, like for the rest of their life, if their door like sticks, they know how to use yeah. a jack plane. Like yeah, they get these that's what I was just gonna basic say. practical Every skills. Everyone will be homeowners. <laughs> well, no, and, and again, so same thing for very much. So everyone doing anything in game development, collaborative online, etc., is like, is it going to be useful to know how to do a little bit of programming? Probably useful to know how to use a little bit of Photoshop. Probably and, like. They can make pamphlets for the churches that they're with. They can do a little bit of service yeah. automation for like the business that they're with. They can do just these additional tools in their skill set to help their family, their communities, their local, their local city, their other people like handy to have someone around who knows how to operate a jack plane is in 2021. Good to have somebody who knows how to write some scripts and run them on a server. Uh, great. We can probably find a use for that if someone around is comfortable with that. And yeah. this is yeah. an excuse to practice it separate from until it's needed for something more serious. Yeah, I bought a house in 2019 and I have, I never took shop. I don't have any. Taylor, we didn't have it. <laughs> we did when I was there. I was going to tell a story about a kid who did a backflip in shop class. Do you remember that? No, I didn't have a shop when I was uh, there. Yeah, that, that was a, an injury that happened. This kid did a backflip and slipped on sawdust and hit his head on one of like the, I don't know, big tools. Told you it's a liability. Yeah. The yeah. only reason I ever went into the shop was to use the air compressors to clean out the computers. <laughs> okay, that works. <laughs> but ever yeah, since the uh, great backflip incident, they wouldn't have shop class anymore. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, that that, that might have been the reason why I got shut down. Taylor Taylor's two two years ahead of me in high school, so he yeah. could have he could have had that experience right before I got in there. Yeah. So, but yeah, I like it. It would have been so useful to me 
to have shop. I've had to learn like on the spot and probably waste a ton of money. And every time I try and do a project, I'm always not as happy as I feel like I should be. So yeah, I'm a little bit jealous. I'm, a, I'm always really surprised because I've done a lot of like construction for work. And whenever I'm learning something new, I'm just like, really, that's all that was? Why did I build <laughs> yeah. this up in my head? You're like just I, cutting it out and replacing it? You're just doing that? This is also <laughs> what I like about game development for intro to program. Granted, obviously, there are enormously complicated, sophisticated ways people tackle into big companies. But like for, for small scale game development, you got several people making the thing and it's not anybody's full time thing or, you know, that kind of thing. It's so much more pragmatic for programming in a way you can't fool yourself as easily as you can for like I'm architecting, networking, rendering, code, whatever. It's like the game needs when these two things contact each other to do a certain <laughs> thing. It's like like several lines of code and you're like, I know what's next. And and like it, it, it really does start to feel like again, and I, I don't say this to demean carpentry again, I love it. Um, but it's like, okay, you can, you can nail boards together and like to make a house, you nail a ton of boards together. And, and like there's the same thing for like, how do you build a game? You, you got like, there's if statements, there's arithmetic, you got some variables, you're going to need a ton of them. <laughs> and like, but you can get a lot of mileage out of some pretty basic concepts before they kind of hit that limit of, okay, I got to re-architect this now. But then I even mm. like that it's a concrete case for like, I actually need to because I have figured out that line between what I can get away with kind of like the simpler brute force. And then yeah. uh, okay, I can see how next time I can spare myself some pain, but even then it, it, it avoids that black box mystery of like, why does it work to exactly all this is equating to is also not that complicated, no magic going on. Yeah. And another good house analogy is like, I had no idea before I owned a house, but like behind this drywall, it's really ugly. Like oh, people yeah. do all kinds of horrendous stuff <laughs> but we just can't see it yeah and since we can't see it it's all good my I, house yeah. is nice I, you I, know? It used to be these things where people would release their game source code and everyone's like oh this treasure trove of educational material it's like no 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 <laughs> I, I i had a blog entry long ago on hobby game dev actually brought together like 30 different public libraries and released for game shipped commercial code and i was like the only thing you're actually learning from any of these from reading any of this is to lower your standards the only thing you're from any of this is like it all ships like spaghetti. It all looks like garbage. It's all a trade off of time, cost, complexity for we can fit in five more features or do one and make the code pretty for its own sake. But like if it works, just don't sneeze over there and let's go to this other thing. And like that is how everything in the universe is duct taped together. Right. Is this healthy thing to like not be so hypercritical and like you're not writing this professor to grade it. You're writing this to get the thing to work. And when it works, you move on to the next thing. It does make me even more scared to fly, though. If that if that's <laughs> yeah, the case, yeah, there's, <laughs> there's there's things that there's there's uh, there's some things that are handled a little bit more slapdash than others. And yeah. so I'm also reminded I can't recall if I brought this area up to an episode. Again, I keep reminding myself like, people didn't happen to go listen to that episode and then this one, so it'd probably fine if I repeat something. You're fine. But so yeah. there was uh, uh, we had a one crossover class with our comp side kids and our engineers who were required in the philosophy department on symbolic logic. And it's like, you know, these tautologies, it's the re it's the ways to rearrange ands and ors statements in programming Boolean logic to like, okay, I can make a simpler statement that's functionally equivalent. But the professor's attitude of quizzes and exercises and uh, or I guess homework rather was you got a hundred percent or zero. If you made any mistakes at all in the homework, you got a zero. And we're like, what the f man? And you know, that's my first we said we're like eighteen or whatever. And the guy's explaining, okay, well, a bunch of you are going to be like civil engineers, and you can check your work here, and you can check your work there. 
And the bridge isn't going to like 94% be fine. It's going to collapse and people will die. <laughs> so you need to get in the habit of checking your work. And we're like, we're the cop side kids though. Our programs just crash. And it helped me respect that like, there are fields that have to actually be a little more rigorous about like, this guy's paper going to stand up or no? Uh, all right. Good job, civics and engineers. That's why I, av- I avoid those fields. <laughs> oh, honestly, right. yeah, Damn. yeah. I was like, like yeah. yeah, my friend who's a, a judge and would be like, he has to make very serious decisions and has to sleep enough because if he gets it wrong, someone like the wrong guy might spend his life in jail. And I'm like, fair. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a big one. I'm gonna keep hey, making I games. Gotta, yeah, me too. I'm gonna I'm gonna hang out. I'm good here. I, a lot of what we're talking about really keeps like dancing around this question and I don't have a way to formulate it. And so I'm going to just like word vomit, word spaghetti at you. We'll rearrange we'll, we'll the magnets on the refrigerator after they're stuck. Yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> but we keep making these comparisons. Like, you know, you said earlier, it's like, you know, carpentry, it's nailing two boards together, building a house, nailing a bunch of boards together. You know, the same thing could be said at game dev, but you know, I'm feeling like there, there, there are some people who want to get into game dev because they have this idea of like putting all the boards together and then standing back and looking at the house and like amazing. But then maybe they get involved with it and maybe they, they think that like many people often do for many industries. Like, well, I got it. The only way that it counts is if I'm in AAA or whatever, right? Where maybe you're only nailing those boards together and then they're sending the next ones down and you're nailing those boards together and they're sending the next one down. Like, I don't know where the question is here, but I'm like, you know, I just kind of want yeah. your opinion on like, are you, what? So are you, are you alluding to what we talked about earlier about like, you know, game dev as a whole, you have all these different aspects of it. You got your programming, you got your art creation. Your sound yeah. Creation, yes. And no. Kind of yeah. I, I guess that's a way. And what the problem is, is that it constantly, because I've been reading a lot lately circles around this, uh, this, um, you know, 19th century German philosopher who wrote this book called the communist manifesto. Um, (laughs) So hot right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of a way to talk about Marx without mentioning Marx, but this idea of finding, um, uh, you know, what's the word? Um, Not joy. Yeah. Purpose. Yeah. Dang it. There's a word, but finding that finding some sort of joy or purpose out of like the work that you're doing is like a valuable thing in and of itself, you know? And, so, yeah, th- there's several different ways we're this from, several which are, are semi-standard stories that I draw from. Uh, so at least I'll use one or two of those I think might c- circle around the same thing. Uh, one is, so I, I came out of making games with small teams, making games alone in high school that were bad remakes of DOS games I liked just because it was seemed fun to tinker on. Uh, and I didn't really get people who liked being on big specialized teams until... Some of my time in and out of AAA, we had this thing where they had rented out a local theater to show the demos to the rest of the teams because big companies throw money around. That's what they do. Yeah. Uh, and on the bus on the way over, they're talking to one of my guys, and he is a network multiplayer backend engineer that's spread across several teams doing like core tech to keep the servers from going down. And I was like, now there's a job. I wouldn't want, but like, again, this doesn't have <laughs> a judgment of the person who's like, I want to understand this person seems to tick differently than me, different parties. What's going on here? And, uh, I love him. He's a very smart guy, a nice guy, et cetera. I'm just talking to him, like, what, what do you like about this? And his answer was like, well, in high school, he was part of theater. He loved being part of theater, but he didn't want to act. He didn't want to choose to play. He didn't want to direct it. He didn't want to play the music. He didn't want to worry about, did we do the wrong play? He didn't want to write to have a good night. He was in all black suit, run on the stage between scenes and move the furniture. They told him to, and then goes to sleep. I did my part and part of something bigger than myself. 
and did my job. And same thing here. Like, he didn't care. Was it, should we have done another game in this franchise? Not his problem to worry about. Should this power-up have lasted longer? New cares. Uh, he comes to work. They're like, we have a problem. The server's down more than they should. Can you make them down less than they do? And he's like, <laughs> I certainly can. And then he does that, and he goes to bed, and he gets paid. And he's a part of, like, helping people do their best work and thrive in their environments and let somebody else enjoy the parts that they enjoy and gets paid well for it. And that's what he wants out of that part of his life. I've added this whole layer of complexity that I didn't even consider, which is that people are different than me. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, some of that's it. Um, Well, the other part, so the uh, the example I used to use in some old slide decks was uh, uh, separate from the house metaphor for no particular reason. Uh, So in boats, right, there's like (laughs) aircraft carriers and there's like carnival cruise lines and there's like a canoe I can build in my garage. And if I build a canoe in my garage, like that's my boat. I made that boat. Whose aircraft carrier is that? Like, there's probably a lead architect's name attached somehow from the institution of Lockheed Martin. Do they also make boats? I don't know. I'm really bad at, I should have done my research to use this example. But, like, the point is, like, obviously thousands and thousands and thousands of world-class, probably, like, the best welders in the world, the best electricians in the world, the best plumbers in the world, helped make this thing happen that is remarkably different and more impressive than my canoe that there is no way it was going to happen the way my canoe does. And I'm sure all each of those people feel some ownership in, like, the incredibleness of, like, we put that out to sea. We are why the Carnival Crew, like, the biggest ship in the world that customers and consumers use exists. Can't take that away from them. That's legitimate. And it's not just like, oh, you're just a whatever your special edition is. That's who they entrusted to do that part right for constructing this engine that moves this incredibly heavy thing. And it's just a very different line of what they want out of it. But in the same way... Any given one of those people might not be able to make a canoe in the garage. And this is what yeah. also sort of like surprised me at the big company is how many of those coworkers I had had never made a game their own. Might not be able to if you asked them. I'm sure they could figure it out, fumble around enough, but never needed to. Whole career might never do it. And I've also known folks who for like for 40 years in industry by the guy's own admission has worked on two games that he had any creative say in whatsoever. And he's not mad about that, not unhappy about that. He's working like, on like DuckTales for NES. That's pretty cool. Wasn't his idea to do DuckTales. He didn't come up with DuckTales. He didn't get to animate them. He didn't program. But he was more of a business person, a little bit behind the scenes, but helped make these things happen the way that people enjoyed, reached a giant audience. People still recognize him for like might and magic involvement and like all these different things he's been a part of, helping make those happen and that satisfying in a different way than like, I mean, I made a, like, space shooter that was totally the way I wanted to, but it also wasn't NES DuckTales or, like, Might and Magic or, like, one of those other things of, you know, whole generations of gamers will talk about. And so, yeah. so it is, is it kind of finding a place for where someone's comfort level or interest in those, and that is where, out of all the games I've worked on, again, it depends on who we're trying to impress or why or how, the time I spent in and out of a giant company being a tiny part with less ownership over enormous console franchises as a technical game designer, many people are more impressed by that than any number of games I've made alone they've never heard of or on small teams that they haven't played because it couldn't have justified the incredible marketing weight and machinery uh, to put it in front of them. Because to be fair, proportionally, if and I think about this too a lot for the design of things, if you could force... Because some people will be like, oh, the problem with my game is marketing, it's discoverability, it's visibility. If I could just get people to see it, like, eh, don't kid yourself. Um, if we could force everyone tomorrow to play that game, how many of them would ever play it again or talk about it again? And like, it's a humbling question because usually answer is like next to nobody who didn't know the person who did it. Um, and that's again, like it's, it's not like, Oh, mine's just as good. It's not as what the aircraft carrier is. Your boat 
will lose to that aircraft carrier. Um, and that's going <laughs> to continue to be the case also. It, like someone might be like, oh, this is a better ride. Okay, fine. So five people can fit in there and have a great time. Nothing wrong with that, but it's just choices we make as creators of what's important to us and what we like about it and different kind of ownership in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And and that kind of ties into like what Taylor was hinting at earlier is that we had this big conversation er- earlier about, you know, where has our game devs quest taken us personally? And, you know, for me, like there was a big emphasis for uh, Taylor and I, when we were starting, it's like, all right, we're making games. We're doing all, I was learning to code, which, you know, I, I was, I was really struggling with. And, and I hit this place with, with coding where it, it became a struggle, it became a slog. I, I couldn't learn fast enough. And, and it kind of scared me away from game dev for a little bit. And, it, and I've really rekindled my, my passion for it because all of a sudden I've realized that there's like these whole other facets that I could pursue or look into or be involved with that's still game dev related, game dev adjacent. Like, for example, like this is so silly that I've been involved in this community for like four years now. And like only this year because of COVID did I, did I learn like the term narrative designer, like, you know, um, and only, only, uh, after your, uh, podcast episode episode with, uh, Chell Wong, did I realize like there's this whole like sort of indie universe of, of audio designers and composers and stuff. And I don't know like why that never clicked with me or anything like that, but, all of a sudden there's this whole new world that I can look at and approach and realize like, Oh, there are concrete steps I could take to develop my game dev in this realm. You know? Right. Um, well, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, and so I think there's, and there's both, I mean, so part of what I love about home team before the college clubs that started, it's, it's precisely that, that it's a chance to plug people together who have different priorities, different interests. Someone can be mainly involved visually, someone mainly in audio, someone mainly, not only in programming, different slices of programming. Someone really cares about rendering. Someone really cares about level design, tool design, etc. And to let them thrive together where they each can better carry their own piece. I think part of what often results in this difficulty, like how did I not even notice that? Why did I assume it was programming-centric? Is partly again, it's like, okay, well, the if we zoom all the way down to solo project, you know, anymore, part of what I do is I bang the drums against like, Solo projects are a bad idea. It's like if game development, game development <laughs> to have that same sticker as like appliances of like, do not try to move alone. You're going to hurt yourself. That's not how it ought to be handled. But like, if we picture the person who makes a canoe in the garage, that person has to be a carpenter. Like that person has to be able to bend yeah. wood and connect wood and polish and finish. Like they can't be just an architect or just an inter. And this is not to say just in any negative way, but they can't specialize in this narrow slice in a way that the bigger the team gets. If you're designing a small ship, with a crew, with a team of people designing it, someone can specialize in the interior and the fabrics and the upholstery. Someone can focus on a whole angle yeah. about the rigging and the mass design. So separate from, I hope you can also nail boards together. And that is where if someone's soloing it quite often, if not code, some other means of com- implementation, game maker, etc., some sort of other even visual scripting, nothing wrong with any of those. But they have to, they have to, one person, if that's all they can do, can make a game. If someone's strength is narrowly specialized in all, I, I compose music. I animate. It is so much harder for them. And they, increasingly there are more ways they can. And I'm grateful for that. But it's so much harder for them to realize that into a vision of I've created an interactive digital thing in which things move and stuff happens and there's progress and there's unlocks and there's features and it does things you've never seen before. And it's where you need a team to be able to have those kind of roles crop up. And that's where the projects have to get bigger than one person can do alone. Yeah. So Rat and I talk a lot about Eric Barone and Stardew Valley too, because 
I don't know. I feel like every person that gets into any game dev, they want to be, the him. Like, they want to replicate years. his, yeah, that's his exactly success. what they want to be. So I'm trying to figure out like how that fits in with your canoe. Sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so there's the combination of, uh, so it was sort of like when academic circles used to discuss like uh, these questions about game designs, people like, uh, but what about the Sims? And the same, or like out of the industry, like what about journey? And it's like, anytime the same example comes up for over a decade, that's your sign. That's not a rule. That's the exception. Yeah. That's your sign that like <laughs> you should have any other example by now besides the same three we've brought up since like <laughs> 2004. Uh, so that's part of it. And those will happen. Uh, you know, it's, it's also it's the odds game. It's, it's like I said, they're like, how, how if you ask a lottery winner do you afterwards? Like, well, I wake up, I eat my eggs. I, I, you know, do my thing. I go to, I go to my job at the paper mill. Now that's important. Don't miss your job at the paper mill or you won't get the right ticket. And like, and, and so like, it's not to say he did anything wrong. It is to say that how likely, is, how successful is anyone else replicated what he did and not um, is the first answer. But the other part is like, even then, uh, if you actually look at the credits for any of those games that seem soloed, there are other people involved in other ways. And it is often illusory that it is in fact as solo as it seems. It's not again to take anything away from him. Uh, but there's other people involved in marketing of things, distribution of things, messaging of things. Sometimes they'll like hire oh, contractors yeah. for helping out with bits and pieces in a way that there's right. still obviously an arterial vision. And again, it's not to take anything away from that either, but it is not usually as solo as it looks. And there's people porting to different platforms. And if yeah. there's not a bunch of other people doing it, it's a bit like to even with music where, um, you know, we kind of like, well, we know the lead singer of the band for like, that's the one who does the interviews and that's the name and that's the face on the band. The other band matters too. But also if you're just a band and all you do is play music, no one's heard of you. You don't exist to the world outside of you unless, and this is where like it gets complicated. But like when we look at these things of why it is illegal slash you need to pay for a license to use samples from Michael Jackson or something, or I, just any other random musician people have heard of. It's because some industry of hundreds and hundreds of people with different jobs that aren't as visible as the person on the stage shoved money and financial risk into developing, getting that airtime on the radio, putting that on MTV, developing music videos, all this other stuff, getting it print and packaged and hand closed in cases with printed art shipped into every store in the United States to build its cultural weight in a way that for some other band that by some critics opinion might be a superior musician did not have the other thousands of collaborators without whom that thing is smoke. No different than any other band I've never heard. Cause I didn't go to the bar that night when they were playing a gig, nothing wrong with that, but it is different. And all of those are yeah. collaborators. Gosh. Yeah. That's a really great way of looking at it. It's funny because like most of the stuff that we're talking about is like hitting on things I've been thinking about a lot, which is again, do what makes you happy stop stop taking this so seriously and uh you know take the little steps like in our the last time we talked you were mentioning that a lot of the people in your club um you know they probably don't even work on game dev every day they might do like a few hours a week yeah and for somebody that's like starting out i feel like everybody's super gung-ho about it they want to do like you know 40 hours or 20 hours on top of their how soon already, can I quit I my job did. to throw a hundred hours a week at the, like, no, don't do that. It just that. doesn't make any sense, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, it's a minor thing I only mentioned because like, oh, what has changed? So we actually, we avoid the word club now as part of our rebranding of home oh. team game dev uh, out of what used to be Game Keto Club. And uh, A, obviously we dropped the Game Keto because no one can spell it, say it. That was a problem. Uh, but the club part 
turns out, and we had this weird select survivorship bias thing of it. I asked people in the group, like, what do you infer from that? And they infer what they needed to. That's why they were there. To other people, club sounded like one of two things. It sounded like a free college group, in which case, why on earth did you charge for that? And they don't see that, like, there's all a bunch of professional uh, services and materials, etc. Or people who hear, like, country club and, like, well, that's probably way out of my budget. No way I could afford that. I don't need to be in a bunch of elite bags dressing that way or whatever. And we're neither of those. And so we've kind of, like, well, we either use group or community or more often where I can, I just actually use the word home team for stronger branding. Look at our business growing up. I like so instead that. of yeah. club games, it's home team games. Club members, it's home team members. In, in the club, in home team, uh, and also lets us be our own thing. Part of what we tried to do, as much as I still overuse metaphors of dojos and boats and buildings and whatever else I can You don't overuse to. them. Well, so <laughs> at the very least, what I've tried to do is lean a little bit less on this is like this, but it's that, and just let it be its own thing. This is a, It's got a particular set of services and approach and structure and things, and it's very much increasingly home team is home team. And what we do is pretty hard to map to. It's not anyone is, it's not a, one of these other things with like a prime next to it. Home team is its own thing, and that gives it a chance to kind of form with more of its own identity. But more part of them, no, like I, we still have, uh, we had a pitch today from one of our like five X project leads who still reflexively calls it a club, and occasionally gonna be like, "Please stop doing that." The new people it rubs <laughs> off on them, and they keep doing it, and everyone knows. And we kind of like Michael. It's like we used to misspell Gamkito, and that's just part of the battle. We're gonna always have to battle. <laughs> I I just thought of this too, but I I do like that it's a global uh, community. And it is home team. Yeah. So you're all part of the same uh-huh. team. It brings you and, all together. And, and you're making games as a team from home. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. And home Whoa. team's got like this weird sports metaphor, kind of like Gamkito had this weird like karate metaphor. It's a whole, yeah, it took a long time to get there, but we're happier with the name. <laughs> I like it. Dang. It yeah. operates on so many levels. Our home team logo is a rotated G from the Gamkito with a split. G off of oh, it. What? Yeah. I didn't notice that. I yeah. Gonna have to look yeah. At if it I hold again. up this logo and you look at Home Team Game Dev, you'll see that it is just tilted to become the roof of a house. Oh. And then I split the base. Oh, yeah. I like it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's part of that also happened because uh, our Gamkita logo, which we've been using like in commerce since 2015 or whatever, uh, I got an email from somebody who was just like, hey, as a heads up, there's an esports team with a strikingly similar logo. And I looked it up and they had pivoted to some logo that looked an awful lot like my Gamkita one. And even though I had it in prior use, et cetera, uh, a, I mean, I don't know. I don't ever want to be those people who's chasing the people down. Like you should change what you're doing. As just like a, if I had investors, that's probably what you'd have to do. I don't want to do that. I instead took it as a chance to like, you know what? I've not loved the word Gam Keto Club for a while anyway. It's been an uphill battle getting people to say and spell that. So let's, 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 let's do something better. And it was a chance for us to try to grow past that moment instead of have some sort of needless conflict with somebody who had nothing to do with us. But coincidentally yeah. has a little looks basically exactly like ours, but red. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. That's, that's funny. Very coincidental. I'm sure. Yes, no, indeed. <laughs> well, and again, it's, it's literally so I mean, part of why it's called game. Keto is the Aikido connection of very much. It is much more, uh, a little bit, you know, defensive kind of go with the flow. How do we keep, how do we land safely from this rather than needlessly, uh, push into the yeah. force kind of stuff. I like that. Live in your philosophy. That's really cool. So I have a much more lighter question for sure. you. Sure. What? So I imagine over COVID time, you, you've played games like the rest of us. What are some games that you've played in the last year or so that you've really enjoyed? Yeah. So uh, a few, uh, most have been in VR. Uh, I have been oh. getting pretty heavy into that, both in Quest and in Steam, uh, fortunately. So I, I didn't have hardware that could run VR Steam games, but a friend... Wound up in a weird situation where she had like an extra gaming laptop, as absurd as that sounds, and was like, 
you won't waste it. And I'm like, you are correct. That was nice. That was good. And so I've been able to do some VR stuff. Um, but I also, even outside of VR, um, that same hardware is actually going to do this too. Um, Call of the Wilds, uh, the hunter uh, game. Yeah. I'm vegan now for my 18th year. And playing the hunting game may not sound obvious. But part of what I've come to appreciate is they have an incredibly good nature simulation of like their trees nice. and their plants and their bushes and their sunlight and their shadows and their streams. And it all just looks really good. Walk around taking photos in it. Occasionally I shoot an animal because the mission says I have to. But like, it's just a nice setting. And I've kind of come to have this bizarre appreciation for the way that at the commercial scale, what funds environment are like that is basically you got to staple gun violence to it. And like the same thing is also true for like, again, like even shooting animals, not I don't shoot people either, but I do that in video games in yeah. playing. So like Hitman in VR recently with Hitman 3 and that was for PS4 yeah. VR. Like it's really, really cool, rich settings with crowds, interesting environments and remakes of different architecture around the world and the stuff. That, and that work couldn't have been paid for and funded if not like also strangling dudes. And I like I've grown up playing violent games since I was a child. I'm not opposed to any of this. It's just like kind of coming to slowly terms with the bonkersness that is the inherent nature of this medium. And obviously there's exceptions to these and things exist that aren't quite like this, but certainly at that scale of operation, that's a lot of going on. So the forest also VR, which is super yeah. horrifying stuff. I played it on peaceful mode all the way through. I've never fought a single thing in it. That wasn't like the alligator spoiler halfway through. There's like <laughs> some animals that can hurt you, but like in peaceful mode, but part of what's bonkers about this. So it's this horror game for it is in the context. I mostly like, cause it's like, it's, so Call of the Wild, uh, the Hunter Call of the Wild, you can't do in VR. It's flat screen only, which is beautiful and use maximum graphics power, you know, power to do that very well. Um, Forest doesn't look quite as good, but it's VR. And that was nice. Like, whoa, but they got like trees that sway in the wind and stuff. So I want that. feel like I'm walking around in the woods, uh, role play Henry David Thoreau and like make my little log cabin by the stream and pick some berries and stuff. And because the game is fundamentally a horror game, even though I'm not playing it as one, and like the caves underground, there's some incredibly messed up stuff, just super messed up things <laughs> that are very much like because I'm playing in peaceful mode, it's like maybe a long time ago, some stuff went down, but that's not recent. <laughs> and I would be like just Googling like how to pick better berries to eat that don't make you sick. And the articles would be like, OK, first of all. Make sure you dismember all of your enemies' limbs and then burn the flesh off them so that you can attach the bone to the skull to beat the other ones to death. And I'm just like, are you guys okay? Uh, what is yeah. <laughs> and it was like, and then you can put the bodies. If you, if you put a bunch of the burning bodies on a sled, you can drag the burning bodies back to your base to create a wall. That, and I'm just like, I can't, you gotta. But again, like uh, this weird fascination I have of like, if, if not for that they would not have been able to have paid artists to make these pretty trees that sway in the wind. And the sun has this nice fog through the trees when it comes up the coastal ridge and the water wave effects. And uh, I don't know. I've just got this kind of baffling interest now in the nature of the, the, the machine that is games as industry in the funding of really, really high caliber art to the extent of like, not going to happen voluntarily if it was like in my free time, which obviously I love free time projects and home team exists around those. But those are ultimately still going to be at a certain scale at which it is like, you know, doing art that uh, you can tell that that's a helicopter move on. You can tell that that's a chair move on. You can tell that that's a tree next thing. And for that level of polish, how much it does kind of need to get connected to action in a way of, I don't know, it's interesting to me as a, as a person who not quite what I'm there for anymore in the games. I like the settings. I like the environments. Yeah. I'm So I'm with you. And I'm actually vegan too. So when I like... In the last, I, I went vegan maybe like 2016, 2017, something like that. And in the last few years, I have 
like looked at games in a different way and even like playing stardew when i'm fishing i'm like this is super fun but i'm also like killing fish who probably yeah. i don't know um but that being said i something that i am interested in is how can you kind of use that space like i'd like to make a game that is uh has some sort of like vegan message but also doesn't like turn tons of people away yep and so there's a weird balance um just like you're saying you got like you're killing lots of people you're not actually killing people yeah it and, and uh, at the end of the day it's like i i i I mean, I was when I was a little kid, like hiding how violent my games were from my parents, quite frankly, like probably 11 or 12, <laughs> yeah. like Command and Conquer and Doom and uh, not like Manhunt or whatever. They were violent for its own sake, but games that certainly had plenty of blood in them and exploding gore stuff and Gibbs and what have you. And uh, I don't know, but right. to me, it was always like a mixture of those games are basically not only like no more violent than from an interaction standpoint like then like toy guns nerf guns water guns true paintball fight etc in many ways they're less violent than like actually playing any sport or paintball where you might actually get injured it's an abstraction for playing laser tag with each other in a set in essence and then everything beyond that is some sort of spectacle for just like sparks that flew out in golden i64 if a head explodes, it's basically ringing a bell like, you got a headshot point. You did that. And it's a different type of machine in the same way as pinball is giving you flashing lights and sounds for, you did what you're supposed to do. And, you know, I don't think people doing that are actually like, ah, yes, murder, finally. This is what I truly <laughs> desired. It's it's the playful fiction. Now, I, the other part, and I do wonder how much of it is from a certain type of game, certainly disproportionately often come from the United States, Historically right, uh, so Tetris and Bejeweled, which pre-Bejeweled, Balls, or Shariki in Russian was the name of that match three. Both of those came from Russia. There's like very fundamental patterns to puzzle games, kind of Soviet, slightly post-Soviet era for Shariki. Uh, and then, of course, Japan with this like stories, RPGs, and like the spirit energies and the magic and the spells and legends or whatever. Weirdly, too, even occasionally incorporating like Arthurian European legend history for whatever reason it is. Maybe it fit in the frameworks that they were designing their other games in or something. <laughs> Zelda's kind of, frankly, that's a that's not a Japanese sword he's got. But then, like, also in the States, it was very much always kind of like shooty-shooty, murder things, action, run over people in cars <laughs> games. Right. And, and, like, I don't know, it was kind of, like, baffling how when Laura and I went to the UK, thankfully before the whole pandemic thing kind of, you know, turned into what it was. Um, but, like, back in, I think, mid-2019 or something, and we turned on the TV, and at first it's like, oh, this is cute. We started changing channels. like, but... So they're not like drawing guns on each other all the time. Like, where's the where's the <laughs> yeah. tension? Where's the excitement? Right? Where's, the, where's the chance that anybody's just constantly just carrying something that might end someone else's life from a range instantly? <laughs> it's just such a baffling thing that our culture has so deeply ingrained in us that is so hard to separate out that I can only imagine. And I did, I mean, I know plenty of people elsewhere. I, I guess I'm too embarrassed to talk about it. How cartoonish that must look from everywhere else in yeah. the world. Of, <laughs> it's wrong. With yeah. People. Yeah, it's like well, it's not even real. It, I talk about this all the time. But of I talk about this all the time, but if you think about American culture, it's like we're, we're not that many generations removed from like the Wild West. And I feel like so many people like carry that sort of fantasy oh, with yeah. them. And, True. And, and I'm not justifying it in any sure. way, but you know, it's one thing I think a lot, especially like um, when reading. Uh, when reading history and stuff like uh, one that really solidified that for me was the uh, indigenous people's history of the United States by uh, Roxanne Barr or wait, uh, it's right Dun here. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz. Yeah. Um, super great. 
history from an alternative uh, perspective, but like, man, early 1900s, like maybe even into like 1920s, like you could get money for killing people. It like yeah, from the government. Yeah, that like during Civil War, I think I just read today there were an enormous number of casualties. Like history classes don't talk about because it it's it's a hard thing to broach with high schoolers, and it's just like culturally not a thing we talk. Like in California, massive drops of populations and things and. There's also a bit where, uh, so I don't know, even my mom wanted to watch some shows. And so we ordered some shows. Like, what kind of shows my mom would watch? Like, like Andy Griffith, we got her those years ago. What are some of the shows she didn't got? And Rifleman was this show from like the 60s, black and white. It's like a whole bunch of episodes and several DVDs or something. And it's just every single episode is just this man and his kid and his rifle fixing the city's problems or the town's problems by like, good thing he's pointing the gun at the right person or shoots the right person or scares him out of town. <laughs> And and just like this mythos of like, that's how things get solved. Now, the other side to this, and this is where geographically, I think also, and this is where traveling overseas helped me appreciate that in what essentially was traversing the area that is California, my wife and I saw like a dozen different, completely different cities in most of the United Kingdom's geography. Obviously, we didn't hit everywhere, but we got a pretty good slice from a thousand mile loop. You can't do that in the U.S. This We're very distributed. And so this is where I'm, I'm at the very least willing to acknowledge some complexity of things are different here in Los Angeles or in Chicago or New York City, etc. Then I've got friends who might live several hours from like the nearest police response and yeah. they have different sets of concerns than somebody else who lives in a city about what ifs. Uh, and yep. so I don't know. It's 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 something where it's uh, obviously I don't like it. It makes me uneasy, but I'm willing to at least acknowledge there's some gray area complexity that has has contributed to our culture's. Um, maybe connection to that in a way of more dense regions of the world. Uh, maybe haven't had some of the same, I don't know, or have obviously found some other way to deal with that situation than we have, which includes yeah. not the least of which it's less likely to be in the other people's hands, obviously as a non-trivial thing. And we're in this classic, you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube very easily scenario. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting because I think that the, the gun thing in games becomes comical. Uh, I can't remember which game it was when I first realized how absurd it was, like maybe it was like one of the Halo games or Mass Effect or something, but you're going along and it's like, by the way, this door is jammed. You're going to have to rewire the electricity to do. So you go and like the way you did that was by like shooting the electrical panels, which is like, yeah, that's a really easy gamified way of doing it. But like every single problem in that game was solved by shooting it. <laughs> well, so, it, it, it so and there's, I mean, here's the bit, right? Where, so including so for VR, the controllers, they, they, they strap a pistol to each hand. That's still <laughs> yeah. the, the baseline for VR controllers of this new medium to explore is you're the, you're the Harry Potter guy in that new movie. No one wants to watch because it's gross of like, well, how am I going to solve my problems? Probably by like pulling the trigger at stuff in front of me is how you fix things. But like, so this, this came up when we were in my brief time in AAA, making the guns upgradable in Battle of Honor Airborne, which at the time was still like relatively novel. Some other teams were doing it too. But it was basically realizing like in an FPS, like your gun is your avatar. That is your character because we don't show you your character. You're not Laura Croft from yeah. behind. You're not Nathan Drake. You're this pistol, you're this rifle, and when you upgrade that, you're upgrading yourself, and that is your means of exerting influence on the world around you, and it's even like, I remember as a little kid, part of my first fascination, one of my first games I could probably play before I could handle an NES controller was the Duck Hunt gun, and which like, just the stimulus reaction of I could be over here and do something that affects something over there is like, this opens up a whole realm of possibilities 
in a way that my arms reach I had grown bored with by age like three or whatever. But <laughs> this, which I needed both hands to pull the spring trigger on, pretty cool. So I don't know. There's obviously there's again something weird there. If it's it's our interaction to a space at a distance and all the mechanics that makes affordable to us. It's 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 a bit it's a bit like I think about how music and we actually like what can you say in games interactivity, and I think there's the same kind of classic I can't remember the quote I think it's been misquoted to a dozen people so whoever I say is gonna be wrong anyway is probably someone less famous about like it's like singing about architecture is like trying to uh, writing about music it's like it, it it's not more dancing about architecture it's like this is not the right way to communicate what this thing is so out of yeah. music music clearly does several emotions incredibly well. Right. We have lots of music about love. We have lots of music about rage. We've got some a handful of other kind of topics we could kind of categorize emotional bins into. But really, there's also a whole bunch of range of stuff like music's not really a great fit for communicating about certain other geopolitical issues and biology topics. And like I can memorize a thing through it, through the layer, but it's not obviously that the music's not doing that the way it is for my getting my my heavy metal out of me, getting my love songs, getting my dance music or whatever. And there's certain things out of which games clearly do real-time spatial aiming at stuff, leading yeah. targets really well. And once we nailed that with, like, Seawolf in 1981 or something, we've never looked back on, like, that's it. Uh, a bit like, I mean, Pinball Machines, which is my other area of research before uh, outside digital game stuff, is, like, uh, they didn't, so they didn't have any flippers until, like, the, I want to say 40s. Now I'm getting rusty on this. Um, they were just shake the machines only. And that's some bumpers oh, and stuff. Really? And the ball would land where it landed. They added some flippers, wow. and then first, like, the machine had six flippers on the on the middle that kind of pointed out where that was Humpty Dumpty. They tried some of the configurations. Once, I think it was 50, 1956, that they stuck two flippers at the bottom. Like, that was so obviously the answer for everything. They had to start <laughs> shipping out kits to retrofit other machines to have two flippers at the bottom, because if it didn't, no one's playing that machine. And again, Pinball never looked back. They're like, what if we put a flipper over here? Okay, for one machine, you can get Whoa. away with that, but we're watching you. And it's like, what if we put a flipper? You better have two of them, because that's what we need. And like, once you just nailed that, and it feels like in games, again, it's like, well, well, it's so good at shooting stuff. So the history <laughs> of game modding goes even back to Pinball. Oh, yeah. Well, so my friends who studied sports specifically would certainly go back to there's all kinds of modding that happened in the athletic space <laughs> and the evolution of sports and blah, blah, blahs. But yeah, um, and in digital games, this also so actually we talked earlier about like how esports makes a more accessible thing. Um, it's also we're out of pinball. Those are the first games played with a full impulse button. You pushed a button and then does the action and how much this removes from it. And part of why it was done is for a larger market to be sold to. If we yeah. take like. Okay, uh, swinging a baseball bat or throwing a punch, career professionals at the top of their industry still have to spend constant time practicing to get it right some of the time. Those are hard things to execute correctly. A child pushing the light punch button in Street Fighter does a perfect punch every time. And that was the experience of a, of a pinball flipper. Those are not physical impulse, like some of the toys being sold of like, I push and it pushes. It's complete electric circuit and giving full impulse. And so it's just a perfect swing every time, which gives you the reliable output. So now your strategy isn't, how do I do this basic dexterity thing right? Instead, it's just pure timing of when I swing the bat. And it's more like playing a digital baseball game where I can't swing the bat wrong. I can swing it too early or too late. I might position myself wrong. But it lets me engage with the problem a different level of abstraction. Um, if I keep rambling forever, I might start talking about, like, anyway, other <laughs> stuff. But yeah, it's a... Uh... <laughs> You know, um, got me thinking, um, you know, if, if you're getting into, into VR and things like that, you know, we had a really great guest on a couple months ago who is studying academically immersive design and 
really figuring out how VR plays a role in that and, and AR plays a role in that. And it's interesting because he, you know, his study was really looking at combining real life elements with fictional elements and, and doing all that. It was, it was a really, really interesting episode. And um, his website, if you're ever interested in checking out some of his little, his little projects and stuff is uh, nickalexander.ca. Just throwing that out there, nice. uh, pitching yeah. for our listeners, and if and if it's something that you're ever interested in, I I was really blown away that there's just so much to think about academically from that perspective. Oh yeah, uh, and it's something that obviously we, when you start learning the right questions to ask, like yeah, obviously, like there's so much to study there. But from the outside, I'm like, yes, VR is a toy, and I love it. I yes, love yes. Well, <laughs> and, uh, and part of the thing about VR, especially within academia, is like they've had a several decade head start of a mixture of like the equipment wasn't as good and it was way more expensive. But like, so Blair McIntyre is one of the professors I worked with at Georgia Tech, and he's been in VR since like '93 or earlier or something. And I've got, you know, peers who came from VR academia went to like design VR systems for Disney's theme parks in like 20 yeah. plus years ago. Wasn't home consumer grade, and obviously lots of new questions and like affordability, and more students have access to test it and find things out and sideload, and that's awesome. But it's also been neat how much history they had in these questions and. I mean, I'm listening to, I think it was literally, so it might have actually been Technopoly, this Neil Postman thing from 1992, in which he has a section about, like, in virtual reality, the (laughs) sense of immersion is greater because it's more like when you turn your head, you're there. And, like, it was at the time of, I think you paid, like, $30 for five minutes at, like, Worlds of Fun or Six Flags to, like, stand in this barrel and pretend like there's pterodactyls (laughs) around you or something. But, yeah, it's, it's baffling that space and how long it's been explored. And now I will say so the, the the counterpoint and my, some of my fears around this is when you're new to VR and you're like, oh, man, I can catch up on the library of stuff. And there's like these pretty massive, impressive things from like five or six years ago. And you're like, all right. And then what did they do? Yeah. And then and that was the big question that Nick was really like talking about is like, what is the frontier of VR in a way? Because it's really kind of reached its peak as a toy as it as for video games it's, right. it's really a toy you know so there's other ways that you can really incorporate it in other things and i kind of personally believe that that gaming will always find a new way to exploit the technology and things like that um so i'm not worried about that but it has been stagnant since you know the <laughs> htc vive came out and we got the one-to-one tracking and all that was like I, the and yeah there's thing. a handful of like good exceptions beginning it's the handful and, and it's part of i think the the discouraging thing is how many people have been battering ramming this problem independently in game jams as students people now with 300 hardware of it's not for lack of trying it's not because no yeah. one's experiment it's not and even if it's like someone should try blank oh i can guarantee you hundreds have you haven't even heard of because how unsuccessful their attempt at least at what you just thought was the mm-hmm. other side to that though is that the uh, like you say, like applications outside of games. I mean, a first of all, like games have driven graphics cards and all kinds of other fascinating optimizations. So occasionally, turns out, especially in the U.S., people will throw money around for entertainment. So we'll see. It might also just be like a higher end, smaller market. I've had a few people kind of guesstimate it might land more like Dolby Surround Sound. Most people don't have it. Most of us know someone who does. We go over to their house for the thing. That might be yeah. closer to the space than like one in every pocket. The way a smartphone has gotten, at least tried to get. Yeah. Uh, or the other space is, like you say, in non-game applications. And so that's where I think people often, they'll they'll focus on games as industry for consumers and look at that history and look like, okay, 
asteroids, 1979, you got like these white lines on a black screen, and it's a vector display. At the same time, there were filled polygons for flight simulators. They weren't consumer grade, they weren't to sell to people, but they solved rotating models in 3D space because the alternative was risking a $15 million jet airplane. And when you're servicing an industry that has an enormous different challenge to solve, and so in VR, I mean, another space people are using this stuff is like in architectural renderings. Yeah. And if the audience that I'm selling this to is eight people in a boardroom, but they're making a decision to spend $900 million or not on a new skyscraper, <laughs> that software paid for its costs. And it's yeah. a very different use case than like everybody wants to cut the fruit. <laughs> it's just a different business model, a different structure, a different thing to deliver. But yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting too. He he outlines one of the problems that he sees. I could be making this up, but I, I I recall something about how that for studying it as it relates to games, there's kind of a uh, people look down their nose at it like it's kind of like trivial. It's kind of like a waste of time in a way too. And and there's so there's not a lot of like consolidated effort on re researching it academically in the game space for the purposes of like you know studying. Uh, the biology of immersion and things like that, like really fascinating kind of kind of topics to when you start approaching it from those angles. Yeah, and it is one of the challenges of any given time. It's a new tech, and I mean, iPads have this for a while too, and oh, whatnot. Yeah. Is basically when they're new, a lot of academics who've and this is not to their discredit have been around for a while, and they've yeah. seen a lot of stuff flare up as like this is trendy to talk about. This is the new thing. Business is trying to push this. A bunch of people had funding for this. VCs thrown around stuff in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and it's all an illusion. Or it's all really no different than what you could have done before in other ways. And we're really not asking any new questions at all. Or if they are, yeah. they're so narrow and they were not. And so it's people are very skeptical at first of like, let's see what sticks around. There's sort of that classic thing of the longer something's been around, the longer it's likely to be around. There's like chess has been around well, for totally. that 2,000 years. Probably still be around for 2,000 years. This yeah. game came out last week. <laughs> I'll at best put my bet on I'll see it a week from now. <laughs> I'm totally guilty of that. I've notoriously thought that widescreen was a gimmick and a trend that was like going to go away. <laughs> and, and, well, so, and, and this is also a thing of aging. And this is like for, for all of us. And part of what happens is at some point you're like, well, I already kind of know a messaging service. I already kind of know a whatever. Yeah. Right? I, I don't need to learn the new thing. The other things working out fine for me. And at some point we're wrong about like, that did stick. And so it's a bit like, you know, when I was like, oh, man, I'm glad I didn't get involved in Vine because that just went out the window. I was right about that. <laughs> but then every now and then there's a whole bunch of people who are like caught off guard of like 20 years behind on Twitter of like, maybe I actually kind of should acknowledge like that's where my entire industry is or like that's where everyone I know is or, huh, yeah. but now I kind of feel late to that game. And um, I don't know. We also talked about so a friend of mine was uh, doing a thing of like, oh, TikTok is just Vine. And I'm like, that's like when your parents said like, just call it your PlayStation and Nintendo because their brain stopped at the first one they learned <laughs> to another generation of people. It's an incredibly different thing. And it's if you care to communicate with that audience worth figuring out like and I haven't, but it's worth figuring out the distinctions and <laughs> that there's some subtlety there of a reason why these are not actually the same. And one word will not suffice to capture them both. Yeah, I was going to ask if you had a TikTok because I'm sure it'd be entertaining, but I've kind of vaguely joked at it, <laughs> uh, played with the idea. I think. I don't know. I, uh, to the, I've had some things go very viral. So like most of my 9.5 million YouTube views are on a handful of my speed demonstration videos. Yeah. The, the majority of people I have found as clients from that have not been the best clients. And this is not to judge anybody. I've had a few who that's certainly not the exception to, but 
It's it it's just the things I know how to do to get the most attention don't necessarily get me the highest yield of people who actually are serious about doing this long term, doing it a right way, doing it, et cetera. And so I don't know, if if nothing else I've currently kind of trying to balance the two of occasionally not being ashamed to make a fool of myself if it like eh, stir up some attention because the numbers help validate for people. But really, at the end of the day, I'd far rather have a high impact on like 40 people or 100 people or 200 people or whatever than a lower impact on a much larger number. And this is also I think I was uh, another topic of another newsletter I just wrote recently was basically the thing of. Yeah, I guess I'll go to the whole little micro story if we can. So Pepsi and Coca-Cola long ago had this taste test and what they would do pepsi was just destroying coca-cola by having these commercials where it show unlabeled cups people would try them each and pepsi would win hands down all the time and people were like obviously pepsi is the superior soda coca-cola at the same time tried to pivot into new coke by making the same foolish error pepsi did of concentrating too much on winning a taste test out of which it turns out the trick is most people don't consume things in taste tests and as soon as you're drinking more than like a tasting cup of something, you get sick of the one that's too sweet. But too sweet is what wins in a taste test. And so part of what almost depth charged a whole bunch, of, I guess did depth charge a bunch of investing in game industry was when we started trying to design our games that way for like Zynga and those kind of businesses in the social <laughs> game space, where because they had the always online connectivity, they could constantly get metrics what people did. They constantly make tweaks and test every single day, A, B, what's going to people do or not. They would steer them towards the thing that gets them to play longer or look at it more. And they would reach just these astronomical numbers of people today. You ask anyone I've talked to who've played those games, do you think fondly on that time? Do you have good memories of that time? Are you glad you spent your time that way? I've received zero responses. Notwithstanding the one who was like, it's a way to feel like I'm in touch with my dad without having to talk to him. Which also isn't that encouraging. And so I'm very much guarded about the like, if the argument is I can reach a bigger audience doing this, I'm like... But are you reaching them? What are you reaching them yeah. with? And so I very much have become a little sort of, uh, despite, uh, basically when I do a YouTube video and it gets more views, I get a little suspicious about like, what did I script this time? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of that kind of thing. Yeah, most well, of it's... those videos that they provide or like offer me as suggestions, they don't look appealing to me. I, oh, uh... no. Well, that's the whole thing with the with the YouTube algorithm anyway. And that's why you have things like El- Elsagate, if you're familiar with that whole phenomenon, which is like, mm-hmm. It's where like kids YouTube goes down this like exceedingly darker path until you're watching like strange adults dressed up as kids characters performing like really uncomfortable scenes like yep. like <laughs> Spider-Man is injecting Elsa with like a giant syringe of like web fluid or like green ooze or like I, it's yeah. weird. But my favorite example because we're to mention like Taylor's also vegan. So part of what happens on these algorithms, right, is they're they're, they're optimizing for what's going to get people to share it the most. Uh, and get them yeah. most engaged and outraged and attached. And so you'll be like, hmm, I would like to do something more interesting with lentils and vegetables. I'm going to look up an Indian food recipe. And it's like, would you like to learn more about vegetarian cooking? And it's like, sure. And that video is like, well, what about vegan cooking? And the next video is like, what about animal rights? That's yeah. important. Let's talk about animal <laughs> rights for an hour now. And, and the next one's like, should you be breaking monkeys out of should be breaking monkeys out of labs? And the person's like, maybe. And the next is like, how to start a local eco-terrorism unit. And like, and like, like in the span of like four hours, a person yeah. who was like, I just wanted lentils. Like I wanted some lentils. And it's just like, here's how to crack locks electronically using apps on your phone from the black market. And it's just yeah. Watch out for <laughs> monkey bites. What was that documentary that came out? The, the social yeah, yeah. dilemma or uh, something? Oh, yeah, dilemma. yeah. And that's the exact Where, same it, that's scenario. the premise it's like literally 
anything but it's politics start with instead of goes down and it ends up veganism. being dark yeah, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. honestly i feel like is sort of how the internet is and well that's how we're here right we're talking about chris having a tiktok and he outlined how bad zynga game for us <laughs> yeah that's right and that's that's the story of how bad social media is for us in a way there it has its purposes it has its like function and it works really well but and, and again basically it's like well you know at some point I've also acknowledged there's things where I, I used to be very anti, like, oh, I don't like business people who do business things, blah. I was one of the, like, I wanted to program, wanted to teach, whatever. That's some point I acknowledge. <laughs> if I'm not willing to see how the sausage is made and make some sausage, somebody else is doing it for me, probably less ethically than I would. And so that is where I do, so my tweets, which you alluded to earlier, can be a little bit of a trash fire sometimes. But I've also, <laughs> like, reasonably well, I've been on Twitter for a long time, used to be more active on it, et cetera. Probably, uh, I'm still pretty active on it. Uh, yeah, but I delete, my tweets. <laughs> I, I delete my tweets often enough, I can pretend like that's not the case. But like, I, I I'll basically I'll have Twitter for a few days after a fresh restart, get a few viral tweets and be like, burn it to the ground. Just regrets, just this shouldn't happen. But at the same time, while that is that space, it has like, I've met a bunch of my good contractors that way. I've had a lot of good podcast guests I met that way. A lot of people who I wouldn't be in touch with otherwise, I'm still kind of in their lives and back and forth a little bit that way of what's going on with each other. And I don't know. It's I've tried to exit occasionally been like, ah, it's not actually been all bad. There's been like, yeah. especially during the pandemic, not the time to abandon my only right. link to a bunch of people who I won't see in person anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. that's what I was alluding to before about the fire analogy. It's it's like it is this great thing. And on it, like, I think that's how Taylor and I met you. We got connected with Enjoy Game Dev Conference that way. Like we everybody in the game dev atmosphere I've met through Twitter. 100%. Yeah. And so for that, it's invaluable. It's my window into this world. It's my window into the other creative worlds that I really enjoy. And so, and you can, and you can curate your experience in that way too. Uh, the problem uh, arises when, um, you know, you, I don't know, you, you've, certain voices are louder than others. And, and those loud voices often get rewarded for being the loud voice, for being the angry voice. And that's what sometimes throws off your experience, I think. This the, what we're rewarded for is also a thing I've, I try to be cautious about. And again, it's again where I've I've taken a different lens to do on YouTube whatever gets me the most viewers, and that's where yeah. I've seen and live and love love in Los Angeles. No people's lives go very bad directions from being too guided by what seems to get the crowd the rowdiest or the most responsive or engaged or something. And I've decided that is not a path I'm willing to go down. But yeah. part of what I'm cautious about, even just posting to Twitter, etc., even if it's kind of like. Well, just to have an outlet or thoughts about stuff or, you know, whatever, uh, is part of what I talk about self-command as well is that basically you have more thoughts by doing something with your thoughts, right? If you want to have like more music ideas, you make more music. You want to, and it's, it's, it's people think of it backwards. It's like, well, I'll have more ideas and I'll make more better games. You start making games, you're going to think more about what to do with games because yep. you're doing it and you have a place to put that thought. You have a shelf that has a slot that only holds game ideas. You're going to keep having ideas that put in that slot. And when we are hanging out on Twitter or, I mean, heck, you're hanging out on Instagram, you're thinking of things in terms of like, what I photograph this and put this on Instagram in a way that if you're not on that network is not a question your brain is giving any time of day to. And it is a case where occasionally I've caught myself, I'll post a reply on someone's Facebook message and the way I would word something on Twitter, that does not translate well. Uh, these are distinct <laughs> spaces. So I don't know. It's 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 like I say, some balance to be walked, some line to be found. But it is also where just as much as I used to experiment on the blog or in the podcast or in videos, and I still do occasionally, I'll float some ideas in a tweet, see if some people 
resonate with it, see if some people help counteract it, see if whatever. And there's a space in which the ability to do that is pretty rad. Not all the negative thing. Uh, it just becomes a matter of carefulness about like how much am I shaping myself to what this is versus can I use this for what it is? And, I, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Can you exploit it rather than be exploited? Yeah. I, I kind of like the idea. I, I really admire your Twitter use. I mean, because you're always like <laughs> thinking things. You're thinking about things laterally and coming at them from other angles, but you're not afraid to delete your tweets like you talk about. And you're not afraid to shut off replies, which I really yep. admire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, and those two things are related it is partly it is, is actually it is literally a wanting to be considerate of others because when I didn't shut off replies to messages, people would reply to stuff and behind I'm trying to have a dialogue and I would just cut the head off of it overnight and just yeah. leave them in these dangling tweets of a conversation that people have no context on. And yeah. so it's an avoiding rudeness of not wanting to like shut slam the door and make conversation like this. This is not a permanent space. If there's a <laughs> thought I shared here, I think is worth saving. I have stuck it somewhere else. Yeah. I have put in a YouTube video. I've written a book around it. I've released a game using. I've done something <laughs> with it that its permanent home was not Twitter. This is not <laughs> what this platform should be for. To me, I will I, say I, I could I, afford I, to adopt your uh, your <laughs> philosophy <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs>